3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8 30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. It is 7 in the morning, and I'm in the studio with Leela and Inez. Good morning. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Congratulations. It's Thursday morning. On yeah. waking up. Look, you made it. You made it. You made it past the incredibly hot weekend. Um, I made it uh, riding through, like having to go to a meeting just as the storm was hitting on Monday um, riding my bike, timing it perfectly so that I did get hit by the rain, but I didn't get hit by lightning, made it to my meeting. So, you know, it's I lived, impressive. I worked another day, and I have to work another day today. Just to work another day. Yes. And another. Right. <laughs> hey, speaking of working another day, um, look, the devil works hard, but the free Palestine movement works harder, and... Um, A Little Bird has told us that potentially RMIT University's partnership with Elbit has not actually ceased. So to find out more, there's going to be a snap action at 3 p.m. on the corner of Latrobe and Swanston Streets. Shane, who has been running that action for ages, is going to be back. And I think we'll be able to find out a bit more about what it means for pending research partnerships to to sort of still exist because uh, RMIT University has said there is no ongoing partnership. But... Um, it's been pretty unclear about what that means, whether there's ongoing funding, for example, to support PhD students to do research around, um, you know, the Elbit Systems connections. So uh, worth heading down and um, demanding transparency and accountability, because as we've seen over uh, the past few months, uh, universities in so-called Victoria are absolutely riddled with defense contracts. And um, this is just not on. Uh, we have to call it out. We have to bring an end to it. People have been doing incredible work at HTA in Campbellfield. And we got to do similar work in places where the intellectual labor is actually going into the production of, um, you know, weapons of mass destruction or even just their components. Um, so we've got a massive show on today. Do you want to kick us off with the rundown? Yes. First up, we'll have Annalise from IRL InfoShop joins us to talk about the upcoming screening of The Feminist on Cell Block Y, a documentary about a group of men inside a prison who form a reading group based on ways men are recruited into dominant culture. The group explores collective struggling towards different ways of building relationships, lives, and in movement building. And you can join the screening on Saturday, the 24th of Feb at Catalyst from 12, uh, sorry, 2.30 to 4.30 p.m. Awesome. And after that, we're going to hear a recording of Egyptian activist Banan and Palestinian activist and member of Free Palestine Melbourne Tasnim speaking at Monday's rally for Palestine outside the Egyptian consulate in Narm. And this rally was uh, called to draw attention to the Egyptian state's active undermining of efforts to provide aid or safe passage out through the Rafah crossing, which they ostensibly control. 
um, but which has basically been appropriated by the Zionist entry, uh, entity uh, for Palestinians being subjected to genocidal bombardment in Gaza. And then following on pretty directly from that, we're joined from Renee from Students for Palestine to talk about the upcoming strike on Thursday, February 29th. Now, Students for Palestine has denounced Israel's ground assault on the border town Rafah and announced plans for a nationwide school and university strike on February 29th. Rafah is now sheltering more than half of the Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip. Most of them have had to flee to Rafah from their homes, which have been reduced to rubble by Israeli airstrikes. All eyes on Rafah. And next, Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre joins us to discuss why job agencies have been forced to return 8.5 million in taxpayer dollars after a record high in faulty claims were lodged through the Workforce Australia Employment Services Scheme during the 2022-23 financial year. Yeah, absolute roaring. Um, that's the real wart, fellas. Anyway, um, after that, Senator Lydia Thorpe is very kindly joining us to discuss the genocide bill introduced into federal parliament last week, the abysmal lack of progress on closing the gap targets and the Productivity Commission's scathing review of overall progress on implementing even the core principles of the Council of Australian Government's national agreement on closing the gap in 2020. And also we'll be talking about the ongoing fight to stop black deaths in custody. And finally... Uh, to provide an update about scrutinizing government expenditure in this week's round of Senate estimates hearings. So you're going to want to stick around for this entire show. Uh, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we will be back to you shortly with the headlines. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 15th of February. Reports are flooding in on the catastrophic consequences of Israeli assault on Rafah, where 1.4 million Palestinians were forced to evacuate. The only place for Palestinians to go that hasn't already been destroyed by Israeli forces is into Egypt. But the Egyptian authorities have refused a general entrance for refugees. At the border with Egypt, Israelis continue to block humanitarian aid trucks from entering Gaza. While trapped, Palestinians face severe shortages of food, water, fuel and medicines. Meanwhile, the most recent ceasefire talks involving the United States, Egypt, Israel and Qatar have ended without a breakthrough. In Nam, protests by Palestinian activists and allies continue despite backlash from the Zionist colonial entity groups, including protests by a collection of activists at the HTA factory in Hume. 
HDA is a contractor for weapons manufacturer Lockheed Martin and forms a vital part of the supply chain for F-35 joint strike fighters, which Israel uses to drop bombs on Gaza. Also in headlines, this week marks the anniversary of the apology to the stolen generations and survivors are calling for action to address the number of First Nations children who continue to be removed from their families. First Nations children are 10.5 times more likely to be in out-of-home care than non-Indigenous children. Arente man William Tilmouth, who chairs the First Nations-led organisation Children's Ground, says the system is stuck at the crisis end rather than investing in prevention. Mr Tilmouth says there needs to be a massive systems change where control is given back to communities. In related news, a new position of National Commissioner for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children and Young People has been announced in an effort to protect and promote the rights and well-being of First Nations children and address the number of children in out-of-home care. CEO of the Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Child Care, Catherine Little, has welcomed the announcement, saying the appointment of a new commissioner will help hold governments to account. In other news this week, migrants and advocates have welcomed new legislation that provides a critical step in upholding migrant workers' rights. Naam-based Human Rights Law Centre said the Migration Amendment Bill takes steps to remove systemic barriers facing migrants at work, including introducing visa cancellation protections, decriminalising undocumented work and establishing criminal offences for employers who exploit workers. Finally, in headlines. An appeal hearing for the Living Wonders case is taking place this week, where three federal court judges will assess whether Australia's Environment Minister is required by law to scrutinise the climate harm of new coal and gas projects. The Environment Council of Central Queensland is challenging the Minister's risk assessment of the Narabri and Mount Pleasant coal mine proposals, and the outcome of these cases could impact how environmental risk is assessed for all future fossil fuel projects in the country. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 15th of February. You're listening to 3CR. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Fasaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Copower gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Copower member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Copower today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. Then, now, <laughs> right now, um, Annalise from the IRL Info Shop joins us to talk about the upcoming screening on the feminist on Selbuck Y, 
a documentary about a group of men inside a prison who form a reading group based on the way men are recruited into dominant culture. Now, the group explores collective struggling towards different ways of building relationships, lives, and in-movement building. And you can join the screening on Saturday the 24th of Feb. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Annalise. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I know it's also very early, but thank you for your, <laughs> <laughs> for your time. I wonder if maybe we could start off with how the IRL InfoShop came to be and like what kind of events currently run there. Definitely. Well, uh, for those that don't know IRL, we are a small organising collective and we run the Incendium Radical Library, which is currently at Catalyst Social Centre in Coburg. Um, we've been running the Radical Zine Fair uh, and we do publishing. We do mutual aid alongside people in prison. Uh, you, hopefully many of you would have seen the letter writing program uh, alongside people in prison that now is running out of Sydney and Brisbane too. We do fundraising and this movie that we're, or the documentary that we're playing is um, in range with our workshop series that we were doing last year and some of those workshops were around the formation of the far right, care work solidarity and struggle, uh, community grief group and the workshop on hope and hopelessness. Yeah, it's really um, beautiful to have such a space that can bring people together. It's giving back to community. It's running, you know, political and personal, interpersonal education. Um, I, you know, when thinking about the movie, uh, well, the documentary, Feminist on Selbock Why, a lot of it is centered around, yeah, it's a reading group, but also thinking about how, yeah, how people are recruited into dominant culture, whatever culture they can sit within. So I'm wondering for IRL, like why pick this specific movie? And I know you've stated it's similar to um, like similar workshops that you've done, but yeah, I'm wondering what you hope that this movie will convey to the audience and also be in line with your work. Well, we picked this uh, particular uh, documentary because it is created by um, all the, the like the premise of it is created by people who are wanting to work on their own um, recruitments into cultures of domination. And you know, I think when it's um, when we've been recruited into cultures of domination and we have that consciousness and then we're wanting to do that stuff ourselves and create uh, projects and and also like contribute to movement building, it's much more powerful. I would say, than somebody else sort of coming in and telling, um, you know, telling us about our own recruitment into um, dominated culture, which is also useful when we're not seeing that ourselves. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, there's sort of two reasons why this film. One is because, you know, it kind of has that for us, by us ethic. Um, so, for, you know, for incarcerated men, by incarcerated men, um, contributes to movement building. It is about men doing that work themselves um, with um, partnerships of accountability um, to other people in their lives, their, their partners, their friends. Um, and also because, like, I think in, I guess, the scenes and groups that, like, IRL people or collective members are in, um, we do want to like build movements together and have people stay in those movements for a really long period of time. And I think for us to do that, we do have to 
like tackle the ways like each of us individually and collectively um, are pulled into uh, like cultures of domination and what we can sort of do about it together. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think understanding that it is for us, by us, and it is, yes, to individual, but obviously it's systemic. And, you know, what is it particularly about a, um, like I know that IRL is also like a library and there is a reading group. I, I guess what are your thoughts on what, like, literature can provide, uh, like a group of people who want to collaborate into movement building? Well, yeah, interestingly, the um, the group, so what what it became, which was Success Stories, they were really heavily influenced by Bell Hooks and Bell Hooks' work on the ways in which um, men are recruited into patriarchy particularly. Um, and, you know, Bell Hooks wrote about that this is like a social problem, not an individual problem. Yeah. And it was a very, like, non-blaming approach to thinking about, like, what do we do about the problem of dominant masculinity? Um, and that, you know, this problem is, like, um, also a problem for men. Yeah. And so, like, I think for, like, it's, I, I'm not sure because I'm not Richie, but it seems like for Richie they were really influenced by literature, by theory, um, and they were integrating theory into their lives and thinking about, like, the influence of theory around change-making. And obviously, I think Bell Hooks, like, doesn't... Like, is, like, an academic um, or was an academic and... Um, but, like, her writing is, I would say, like, quite accessible. Yeah, um, You know, some... Like, not all of it, but I think some of it is quite accessible. Uh, and also is, like theory in an academic sense, but also very much entwined in her life and in the people's lives around her and in the lives of um, black people in the um, in the US. And so I think, like, when we think about, yeah, wanting to change and do stuff about our lives, sometimes, like, reading and engaging with literature that is also about um, stretching our thinking, uh, stretching, like, you know, our world, like, I think it can really help us. To, like consider a different like perspective or way to go about the problem. Yeah, um, and I think like yeah, like without perhaps like meeting with Bell Hooks, um, like when that collective did, you know, meet with her ideas. Sometimes I think we can in without doing that we can individualize the problem, um, which then is also a problem. It's also a problem yes. because then we're sort of, you know, making it the fault of individuals that these systems of oppression exist. So I think theory can help us to, yeah, really look at, like, what is the problem um, and what collectively we can do about it. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, the core essence, I think, of what you're saying is also about, like, translating knowledge in accessible ways and bringing that into practice but also yeah being able to like expand your worldview and understanding different ways of thinking um is hugely important and it's beautiful that literature can provide us that including the formation of reading groups and yeah i guess with the screening that's upcoming up on the saturday 24th of feb what do you hope to like convey from the audience also who would you like really like to be in the room well, we're hoping, so we're going to do the screening and then we're, we're hoping to have a discussion about the screening. 
um, and to talk about the relevance to people's own lives. We would love to have uh, many people at the screening, but also particularly we would like to have um, people that feel that they are pulled into dominant masculinity um, and have, like, noticed perhaps some of the ways that impacts their lives and impacts their organising as well. Um, So, yeah, we would welcome and open to anyone um, that would like to engage with these ideas. But I think what we've seen over time in doing a range of stuff around um, challenges to dominate a culture is that it seems like people most affected are people that show up to events like this. Um, and we would love to have, like, people that, yeah, feel a bit more pulled into it and, like, perhaps are getting some benefits from um, the ways in which, you know, entitlement thinking works in the world would come and, yeah, engage with the ideas and be with us and um, think about how we can do this together. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really important to highlight that. Would you have maybe like any advice on maybe like a friend or a family member? Um, and you're like, Hey, I don't know how to approach like asking you to come to this screening. Um, yeah. Do you have any advice on like how we can bring more people who are pulled by dominant um, masculinity and culture into the room? Oh, wow. That's a really big question. I'm not sure I have any advice, but <laughs> okay. um, it is a big question. <laughs> maybe it would be around, you know, like, have you been interested in like noticing the ways that, um, you know, dominate, dominate a culture, like affects your life um, and, you know, people around you? Because like one of the like powerful things about the documentary is really that it's talking about how this also affects, um, also affects men um, and and that, you know, how do we start noticing that this effect is also, like, means less closeness with people, less connection, um, and, like, yeah, distance, or probably it's, like, having a whole bunch of effects about the way people have relationships. And so maybe it is having that conversation, like, have you, yeah, ever noticed that or started noticing that, and do you want to come along and talk more about that um, or find out more about why that's happening? Yeah, amazing. I think that was really beautifully put. And, um, yeah, I think our listeners and also, yeah, myself are, are taking away a lot from this conversation about how to, yeah, invite people into the room. And lastly, how can we show up to the screening? I know it's Saturday the 24th of Feb, 2.30 to 4.30 at Catalyst. Was there anything else that you'd like people to keep in mind when attending? Um, yes, we would love for people to um, wear a mask. Um, and take all COVID precautions. That mm-hmm. would be really great. Um, we will have like our air filter on. It is like it doesn't have windows. So base at 144 Sydney Road. So yeah, also being aware of that. Um, and yeah, to come, you can RSVP, but you can also just show up. We really don't mind either way. Yes. Um, the RSVP is more about um, so we can provide enough snacks for everybody. Yeah. Um, but yeah, bring questions, ideas, and opinions. Like, don't uh, don't feel like you need to know everything, or like that you've come to like a conclusion, even or an end point about this stuff. Like, just yeah, like it's just come with how you are. And hopefully we can, like, talk together and help each other, like, get through this. Um, because also, like, this 
documentary is particularly about the ways that men have been pulled into cultures of domination, but we're all pulled into cultures of domination. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, come along with, like, yeah, some openness and, um, yeah, hopefully willingness to kind of interrogate that in, in ourselves yeah. and in our world. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Thank you so much, Annalise. This has been a really insightful and, you know, meaningful conversation about what it means to be, yeah, pulled into dominant culture, what we can do to support each other, um, yeah, and interrogate the ways of thinking that are, you know, dominant in our discourse and maybe in our minds, but, you know, working together for it. But I hope you have a really beautiful day uh, for the rest of your day, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, and I hope you have a lovely day as well. Thanks, Annalise. Bye. Thank you. Bye. That was Annalise from the IRL Info Shop, who joined us to talk about the upcoming screening of The Feminist on Cell Block Y, a documentary about a group of men inside a prison who form a reading group based on the ways men are recruited into dominant culture. And you can join the screening event on Saturday the 24th of Feb from 2.30 to 4.30 at Catalyst Social Centre in Coburg. Now, it's been terribly remiss of us to... Forget to mention that this week is 3CR's subscriber drive, so just want to do a little bit of a plug for that. Here is Uncle Robbie Thorpe with more. Hi, everyone. My name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year, and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe become a member, become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website, 3cr.org.au, or you can ring on 94198377. 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to hear a recording uh, of Egyptian activist Banan and Palestinian activist and member of Free Palestine Melbourne Tasnim speaking at Monday's rally for Palestine outside the Egyptian consulate in Narm. This rally was called to draw attention to the Egyptian state's active undermining of efforts to provide aid or safe passage out through the Rafah crossing for Palestinians being subjected to genocidal bombardment in Gaza by Israel. Hi everyone, thank you so much for coming. First of all, I want to say salamu alaikum. My name is Benin, I'm an Egyptian woman and I'm an immigrant. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and the custodians of the land that we gather on today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay respect to all elders and Aboriginal people, past, present, and future. Always was, always will be. 
Growing up during the Second Intifada, I quickly came to realize and understand that Palestinian liberation is our liberation. And Gaza is the test. Gaza al-Ikhtabar. And we're being tested right now. Before I, uh, before I share my words with you, first I'd like to also read a statement issued by the families of Rafah and the displaced people of Gaza. We declare that we will not leave Rafah under any circumstances. We have decided to either die here or return to our homes victorious when the war has stopped. On behalf of every displaced person and on behalf of the people of Rafah, we call on all world powers to act forcefully to curb the aggression, stop the massacres, and prevent the Rafah catastrophe. We will not accept returning and leaving the people of Rafah who welcomed us open their hearts before their homes to us, share their food and clothing and drinks with us. We will not leave them alone. We have made our decision. And nothing will happen except what Allah has written for us. And we also call on the free people in the land of Egypt, its proud and beautiful people who love Palestine, to act and pressure their government to put an end and prevent the Rafah operation. We will not leave Rafah. And we will die standing tall, either victory or martyrdom. The displaced and the people of Rafah, and Allah is the greatest. Allahu Akbar. As you can see, I think the demands are all there. We've been asked by the people of Gaza and the people of Rafah. Now is the time to act. Prior to this genocide, prior to this ongoing genocide on Gaza, which has been Gaza has been enduring a 17-year blockade. Witness an already meager entry of 500 commercial aid trucks daily. And let me remind you, there is approximately 1.4 million people in Rafah, Gaza right now. This is more than half of Gaza's population cramped in Rafah with nowhere to go. Currently, Gaza receives a decimal average of 48 drugs, eight trucks daily, morbidly consisting of expired food, burial shrouds, and devoid of any medical supplies. Shame. Shame job. Since Israel's comprehensive siege on October 9th, vital resources like water, fuel, and food have been ruthlessly cut off, resulting in a dire famine that surpasses the available resources that these trucks could provide. Shame. Despite 58,000 injuries reported, Palestinians needing life-saving treatments are allowed through Rafah crossing at a rate of only 10 or 20 people per day. Shame! 10 and 20 people? Shame. 10,000, over 10,000 people have tragically, have tragically died since October 7th due to Egypt's denying their entry for life-saving treatments. Egyptian brokers, aligned with the military, export hefty bribes up to 10,000 U.S. dollars per person for Palestinians seeking, desperately seeking to cross Rafah. Shame. Shame job. Shame job, Sisi. We demand Egypt to open the, open the Rafah crossing and stop complying with Israelis blocking on Gaza right now. Yesterday, actually. Let the humanitarian assistance in, into Gaza and open the border to the injured to be evacuated to hospitals outside Gaza with no restrictions. 
CC says that the Rafah border is open from Egypt's side but closed from their side. Who's they? I can't find an answer. What is stopping Egypt from controlling its border with Palestine? What is stopping Egypt from exercising its sovereignty over Egyptian-Palestinian border? I still can't seem to find an answer. Nothing that, that I can't seem to find an answer that doesn't go back to the government's collaboration with the Israeli apartheid regime. And this matches with how the Egyptian government has historically failed the Palestinian people. We are complicit in this genocide and we say not in our name. Shame. To be this close to Gaza, sharing an arbitrary border, and instead of rushing in aid and allowing our siblings in if they wish, allowing them for medical, for medical attention, you profit of their pain? You profit of their suffering? Shame. Shame. Cashing in on a genocide, shame. Where are you going to show your face from Allah? You claim to be Muslim. Shame. Four months of this genocide, and I'm sure we've all seen the videos of the children on the, on the crossing, speaking with so much love to the Egyptian people, so much love about Egypt, begging them for a cable, for a drink of clean water, for something to eat, as they continue to build another 13-kilometer fortified barbed wire with sensors that you probably see on our, our, our fence. Shame. Letting the occupation bomb Egyptian land and allowing them to control the only crossing between sovereign Palestinian and Egyptian land, that is shameful. And now genocidal Netanyahu has called for a plan to evacuate more than 1.5 million, 1.5 million Palestinians from Rafah. To where? Where are they supposed to go? They've, you heard him. Inshallah. افتحوا معبر رفح بتنسيق مصري فلسطيني now cease fire now and free cease fire now and free Palestine till it's backwards thank you free free Palestine thank you everyone and thanks for responding to this snap action we haven't neglected Egypt. We just thought it's, it's about time. It's about time that we put this attention on the Egyptian consulate locally. But of course, this is in solidarity with the people of Egypt and the people of the Swana region who have been relentless in their critique over the past four months, ignored by their governments, by the Arab governments, by the authoritarian dictatorship, military police states that have become the countries that we belong to. As a Palestinian, it has been my duty to stand with the other nations in the region who have accepted Palestinian refugees, but not only that, who have carried the Palestinian struggle for over 100 years. The only reason that Israel is able to carry on this genocidal assault on Gaza is because the world conspired to defeat the Arab Spring, the Swana Spring. This is why we are here. 20,000, 30,000 murdered, murdered in cold blood, and the Arab streets 
are not able to aid them. Why? Why are we in this situation? When in 2011, and we just marked the anniversary of this spring, these uh, nationwide revolutions, why is it that now we are desperate and that uh, now we have very few avenues to support the people of Gaza. This was done because of imperialism and it was done because of Western Empire and Western interests in the region that will not allow our people to decolonize, will not allow our people to be liberated. And when I say our, I do not mean the Palestinian people, I mean the people of the region who have been brutalized, who have been subjugated and repressed for decades, upon decades and before that, centuries, under the boot of empire. It's painful, and it's not only painful, it hurts me deeply, deeply beyond words to see the situation that we are in. And I will reiterate it over and over. Israel was unable to take Gaza prior to this moment. And we are on the verge of that. We are on the verge of the complete, the completion of this military operation. This genocidal assault that should awaken every single one of us. This genocidal assault on Rafah is a make it or break it situation. And the reason why Arab governments have not moved, have not acted in support of Palestine is not because they cannot hear the people on the streets, but precisely because they can hear them and if they do something in favor of democracy in the region, the democratic demand, the widespread majority, almost 100% demand to support the people of Palestine, they know that every other demand will be inspired in the region and this is why we are here because it's about subjugation of our people and it's about colonization of our people. When will we be allowed to breathe and when will be when will we be allowed to live and dream of a better future outside of empire and outside of imperialism? That is the question. The last thing I'll say is the reason why this is painful is because this wasn't achieved only through military dictatorship. Actually, it was achieved through racism and through collaboration of classes of people within the Middle East who accepted the military coup, who accepted Sisi. When people stood against the uh, military coup, we saw that what happened, and that was the Rabah massacre, another make-or-break situation. When Rabah happened, that was the moment for people to stand with the people of Egypt and say, this is unacceptable. But like Afghanistan, the Western left, and not only Westerners, but people in the region who have a Western mindset, they collaborated with the supposedly secularist side to repress and to defeat the forces that could have been aided in a way that led to an integrity for the movement. And this is why we're here. We saw in Syria, similarly, the complete repression of the revolution. And I would say that people in Idlib still hold the cries for revolution, and they deserve support as well. And it's not about black and white. It's about who do you stand for and who do you stand with. And if what you're standing 
with his military coup, then this is the outcome. The outcome is that who will open the border of Rafah? And this is a question that we all have to reckon with now. We need to get smarter and we need to be very clear and committed about what kind of future we want and what kind of fight it will take to get there. Because the fight led to deaths, led to massacre in Rabah. And that scared many people. And that shifted a lot within the Egyptian society. But what that led to is a police state. It led to thousands being executed and thousands being detained and tortured in Egyptian prisons. And that is unacceptable. That cannot be where our politics takes us. Thank you. And that was a recording of Egyptian activist Banan and Palestinian activist and member of Free Palestine Melbourne Tasnim speaking at Monday's rally for Palestine, which was held outside the Egyptian consulate in Narm. And again, that rally was called to draw attention to the Egyptian state's active undermining of efforts to provide aid or safe passage out through the Rafah crossing for Palestinians being subjected to genocidal bombardment in Gaza by Israel. And I think those speeches also really highlighted, um, you know, the popular support across um, a variety of countries in the Middle East that is not reflected by uh, the governments in power. And um, I think those speeches really, I don't know, it was, it was really, um, for me, attending that rally, uh, an important uh, counterpoint to a whole lot of uh, dominant Western media narratives, which really fail to capture the kind of nuances of pan-Arab solidarity um, and the difference between, I guess, like state positions and um, popular movements to express these kinds of solidarities. So um, really glad to be able to play that audio. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. No more whispering in our arms Gonna rise up to break these chains And stop these killing games Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne invites you to join us on Saturday the 17th of February at midday at the State Library, Swanson Street, Melbourne to mark the 20th anniversary of the death in custody of Redfern teenager TJ Hickey. Honour the memory of TJ and the many deaths in custody families that now number more than 555 since the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. No one to date has been held responsible for these deaths. We demand end the practice of police investigating police and immediate implementation of all 339 recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Come along Saturday 17th of February, midday, at the State Library. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au 
We love a good book. And following on from our next, from our previous pre-record from the Egyptian rally, we have Students for Palestine's Renee to talk about the upcoming strike on Thursday, the February 29th. So Students for Palestine has denounced Israel's ground assault on the border town Rafah and announced plans for a nationwide school and university strike on February 29th. Rafah is now sheltering more than half of all Palestinians living on the Gaza Strip. Most of them have had to flee to Rafah from their homes, which have been reduced to rubble by Israeli airstrikes. All eyes on Rafah, and thank you so much for joining us here today, Renee. That's right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I thought maybe we could start off with, you know, why Schools for Palestine have, uh, sorry, Students for Palestine has called a strike and why it's particularly important right now with what's happening in Rafah. Yeah, well, um, yeah, like you said, Israel's launched this, yeah, horrific bombardment of Rafah, um, pushed around from one spot to another by the Israeli army for the past, um, you know, three or four months. And now, um, 1.5 million displaced Palestinians are trapped in this enclave, which has been besieged. Um, over 100 people have been killed in the past couple of days in what was once a safe zone. So, um, yeah, we called it because we think students need to take disruptive action. Um, the newspapers um, and the media have totally deprioritized the issue, and we want to show that, um, you know, we're going to start off the new year with disruptive action for Palestine, and we want to show that, you know, young people don't agree with what's happening, and, yeah, we want to show the resistance. Yeah, definitely. I think it's so important that, you know, students have called this and that there is such power in numbers. I wanted to maybe touch on why it's particularly important for students and young people, particularly striking out of schools or, yeah, universities on this day. Um, and what unique, yeah, unique, unique power do young people have in, in striking? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think you kind of look at the last couple of strikes that we had last year, the first one that the school students did was like over 2,000, um, yeah, over 2,000 students walked out of school and came to the city. It was the biggest school strike for Palestine in the entire world. I think it shows that, yeah, young people, um, yeah, don't agree with what's happening and have an appetite to come out and protest for Palestine. I think with this one, we kind of, yeah, want to inject some of that, um, some of the, yeah, excitement and of the high school students into uni students. Um, I think that the more people on the streets, the better in terms of, um, yeah, challenging the status quo. Um, students play a really important role in any kind of movement, but, yeah, especially for Palestine, um, yeah, striking is really important. And what's happening in Rafa right now is an atrocity, so um, we really need people to come out and strike with us. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, you know, attending some of the school strikes that you've held in the past where you're also, like, chanting in... Melbourne Central, and also a lot of the chants are really organised, like you're telling people to speed up and speed down, um, and it's also echoing throughout Melbourne Central. I find it really yeah, powerful to have that many people um, echoing through like the halls of <laughs> consumerism, especially, saying you have to demand to listen to this. Um, yeah, I'm wondering how, like, you know, the other strikes that you've been on, what are the kind of, like, sentiments that you have carried or really like felt in the room that really like motivate um yeah motivate you or your peers to be like yeah we have to keep doing this yeah well I think like 
one of the main things, the first one that I went to is just like, you know, one of the main things that the you know, that they tell you is, you know, Holstein is this really complicated issue and you can't possibly understand what's going on and mm-hmm. you should all just stay in school and go to class and whatever. But it's like, yeah, you go to this strike and it's like 2,000, like, 15, 16-year-olds um, and all of them are just so politically sharp. Like, they know exactly what's happening. Like, they know how, like, horrific and wrong it is. They know how, you know, hypocritical our government is and how complicit they are. Um, yeah, I think it's just really powerful and inspiring and... Um, yeah, it shows that, you know, even though our government and our universities um, are all, yeah, now, yeah, schools want to um, stop us from existing, um, people still want to come out and fight. I think it's, yeah, shows that, yeah, I think we need to keep doing it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, wanting to come out and fight every day. I'm also curious about, you know, what it means for, as you said, like people are politically sharp. It's not too complicated. It's pretty clear what's happening. And when it comes to, I guess, you know, mainstream, you know, Australian education, when people are, um, in it and there's clearly a lot of, a lot of flaws in the curriculum. Um, are there some like disconnects that you see from when people are in school versus like what they're politically thinking and what they're also seeing with their peers at the strike, at the protests? Um, yeah. Do you feel like there's a strong, disconnect there yeah well i mean you're not taught about palestine in school um you're not taught about how you know horrible that government is yeah that's like the curriculum oh sorry renee um you're just breaking up just a little bit oh that's okay um just give me one sec would you mind saying something again yeah okay yeah yeah sounds good yeah yeah i think yeah, especially like, yeah, the past couple of like, you know, the entire, not just, you know, all of your. Sorry, Renee. Um, Sorry, Renee, you're cutting in and out again. Would you mind um, just checking if you haven't moved somewhere where the reception's a bit dodged? I have like four reception. Can you hear me? Yes, we yeah, can that's hear you much clearly better. now. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Um, maybe we could start again um, just talking about the disconnection between mm. yeah, people, young people's political um, resistance and what they're seeing versus what you know, mainstream Australian education is kind of teaching them or not teaching them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's like, yeah, really powerful. You kind of see, you know, all of these, you know, awesome high schoolers, they, yeah, go to school and they're not taught about what's happening in Palestine firstly, but then also, you know, they're told by their teachers and their principals not to go out and strike, to stay in school and not to fight, um, you know, against this atrocity that's happening, this, like, genocide that's happening. Um, yeah, but then they come out onto the streets and actually it's like, you know, you can see that loads of young people have a lot to say about the world. Um, you know, it tells you a lot about, you know, the people who design the curriculums who don't want to talk about Palestine. Um, yeah, but through this mass movement that we've kind of built, not just with the school strikes, but the, yeah, 17 huge um, Sunday rallies for Palestine. Like, people are learning through the streets. Yeah, 100%. I think you've brought up a really great point that people are learning uh, from the street and showing up. Um, and that's that's so huge for movements as well as, you know, yeah, yeah personal, like, ongoing hope and resistance and when we're thinking about like maybe young people who are want to strike or are unsure or are worried about their parents or the school is there anything that you'd maybe like to 
say to them about yeah coming on the strike, showing your support in in this way? Yeah, well, I think you know if you think that what's happening in, in Palestine right now and also all striking um, is really important, and you know coming out showing that even though the news wants to you know, stop talking about what's happening, even though everyone you know always from your to to you know easy who condemned the you know school which is last time important um, you know um, showing that young Hey, sorry, Renee. So sorry, Renee. Um, you're just breaking up again a little bit. Um, sorry. No, that's okay. That's all right. Uh, yeah. So maybe we can just double check, like when we're uh thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. If you wanted to maybe repeat your point, just because we missed a little bit. Sorry. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. If you think what's happening is terrible, come out and strike basically. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, amazing. Thank you so much, Renee, for... Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much, Renee. Yeah, we'll we'll pop it in the show notes. Um, yeah, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And yeah, we will hope to see everybody on the school strike for Students for Palestine on February the 29th. But yeah, hope you have a lovely day as well. Thank you. So that was Renee from Students for Palestine, who spoke about the upcoming strike on Thursday, February 29th. Uh, students for Palestine have denounced Israel's ground assault on the border town Rafah and announced plans for a nationwide school and university strike on February 29th. Rafah is now sheltering more than half of all Palestinians living on the Gaza Strip. Most of them have had to flee to Rafah from their homes, which have been reduced to rubble by Israeli airstrikes. All eyes are on Rafah right now, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. It's currently 7.53. Hey everyone, this is Jen Cloer. I'm here at 3CR Radical Radio and it's just a little reminder that you might have forgotten to subscribe so why don't you do it now? Jump on the phone 9419 or online at 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. Let's keep independent community radio alive. Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at footnote bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. From 
from every corner of the land. Womankind, arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Now, Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre joins us to discuss why job agencies have been forced to return $8.5 million in taxpayer dollars after a record high in faulty claims were lodged through the Workforce Australia Employment Services Scheme during the 2022-2023 financial year. Now, hi, Jace. Thank you so much for coming in this morning. No worries. Thank you for yeah. having me. Um, so first up, I thought for those who might not be currently in the job seeker system or those who are just... Um, I think after a while it all kind of just gets the same flavour and you forget how the actual parts work. Can you remind us of the role job providers play within the Centrelink Job Seeker Program and under what circumstances they can currently claim government payments? Yeah, sure. So uh, when you uh, apply for a Centrelink payment and you're approved, um, if you get the Job Seeker payment, which is the main working age payment or a youth allowance payment, um, you are then directed to go with a job agency or an employment service provider. And so their role is essentially to help you find work, except that they don't do that because they are generally incompetent and untrained. So they are, the main role that you do is applying for work, but these job agencies, if you don't find work quickly enough, they will put you into training courses um, that do get them payments. Um, or if you're in there long enough, they put you into the forced labour program, which is work for the doll. Um, but if you find a job, which is generally what happens, most people find themselves a job, and that generates an outcome payment for an employment service provider. So the longer you stay in a job, the the more you know the more money that they get. Um, so and they get paid regardless of whether they helped you find a job or not. So those are that's essentially the role, but they don't play much of a role in helping people find employment. Rather, just bully, harass, and abuse people, which is their common kind of modus operandi. Yeah, it's pretty punitive, and I think it sounds like most of the time people are getting themselves into work, writing their own yeah. applications, and then you know having the stamina to stay at work for however many years while the agencies receive these payments. So we know that $8.5 million in faulty claims yeah. has been retrieved uh, from these job agencies. Why is this number particularly notable and how does it deviate from previous financial years? Yeah, so, I mean, that is the highest since the 2019-2020 financial year. I'm just looking at my phone now. Um, the first, well, in 2019-2020, that were, the recoveries were about $2 million and 60, 65% of those 
re- oh, 65% of that recovered was by the provider saying, we accidentally did this. Yeah. So if you fast forward to this year, it's about $8.5 million, and 80, 18% of that is provider-initiated. So, I mean, the previous years have all been below, you know, about $3 million. So what that shows is that that was just the tip of the iceberg mm. in the previous years. And this year we're seeing a more probably accurate kind of depiction of yeah. how much has been uh, falsely claimed. Um, so, yeah, I, again, I think that is just the tip of the iceberg because we know that their practices are – it has been reported in the media recently. Uh, there's an employment – the largest employment service provider, which is also a private company, mm-hmm. uh, APM, has been uh, – you know, falsely claiming uh, or getting job seekers to claim that they found them uh, work and telling them to submit those. So, you know, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, for example, has, like, highlighted two cases with that. And, um, yeah, I think it's been reported in The Guardian as well by Kate Kelly. Yeah, um, I was wondering if you could go into the details a bit more on how the privatised system particularly lends itself to rotting and what those kind of cycles look like? Yeah, so what we know is that these are horrible, horrible places to work at. Um, And the people who work there are untrained. You don't need any training or qualification to become an employment service provider. Um, And there's one case that I was looking at uh, from a few years ago. There was a, a... person in their early 20s who was working as a receptionist for an employment service provider and in a very short amount of time found themselves to be a manager of an employment service provider in Cairns. Uh, and what they, they were so overwhelmed, the previous job before that was in hospitality, so they have never had any office experience and basically their job is to get outcomes. And so this person started putting in false claims because they were under a lot of stress, under a lot of pressure. And then uh, the company basically handed them over as, you know, a sacrifice to the department and said, oh, well, this person was, you know, claiming fraud. So there would be case- cases like that. Uh, there would be a lot of uh, cases where people, uh, that where company policies, which are set differently to department policy, where people are probably unaware that they're um, submitting false claims. And so... Probably what's happened now is with the new uh, Workforce Australia uh, program, which used to be called uh, Job Active, is that the department have better uh, software or detection to pick these up, and that's why they're getting them, and that's less of a provider-initiated thing. So that's probably another thing that's going on in there. So there's, like, multiple different moving parts, uh, and there could be multiple explanations, and I don't think all of them are nefarious, and I definitely don't think any of them are altruistic. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for explaining that. Um, now, in response to this record number of faulty claims, the National Employment Services Association, or NISA, um, which is the peak body for job agencies, uh, Catherine Mandela, chief executive of NISA, commented that there are, quote, varied circumstances that contribute to an automated or manual claim for payment being made in error including administrative mistakes and system errors, end quote. So I was wondering what you kind of make of this explanation from the chief executive of the peak body, and do you think that NISA plays a role in enabling, um, well, yeah, I don't know if it's misconduct or just poor management from job agencies? 
Yeah, so there's two parts. I'd say that that quote is kind of correct, but I don't think that this, the, the, the person saying that is saying that for a good reason. Basically, like, NISA is a protection racket for employment services. So they're the peak body, which means that all the, the job agencies uh, who want to be a member of NISA pay them a fee, and NISA's job is to lobby the government to get the government to pay job agencies more money. So there's that kind of perfect circle of, like, you know, uh, you know, snouts in the trough of public funds because it's all funded by the taxpayer. None of it comes from private, um, you know, payments. <clears throat> so, yeah, they're just, yeah, a protection racket that's just kind of, like, playing down and minimising how cook the system actually is. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's kind of this unlimited resource of public funds to pay for um, private companies to yeah, flourish and make money. Yeah, billions and billions of dollars yeah. for them. Yeah. So it seems pretty obvious that NISA doesn't have the will or the capacity to hold their systems accountable for these failings. Um, what would you like to see uh, in in place to hold the system more accountable? Yeah, so first of all, the main thing that we advocate on is to, uh, you know, end all mutual obligations, so no more payment suspensions or payment penalties for people who don't do their mutual obligations and immediately bringing in and to work for the dole. Like, those are the two biggest things. And also, like, you know, once people are not forced to have to go to their job agency and they... Uh, have a voluntary service that allows for job agencies to actually just focus on trying to find people employment or trying to help people get work ready, which is not what happens at the moment. So I think they would actually prove themselves as a service and worthy of, uh, you know, public expenditure if they were actually doing the job that they're paid to do. So that's why we call for a fully voluntary service. Um, and obviously we know they won't do that because if they don't do that, then these companies won't make money because their business model is not designed to help people get jobs because it's just to manage uh, poor people, basically, and make sure that they're jumping through hoops to justify getting their social security payments. But, yeah, a voluntary service to make them do their jobs so people can get jobs. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. Um, just adding on for that, as someone that has had a lot of conversations with job seekers, with people that are in this system right now. Um, do you have any advice for protecting yourself while you're dealing with job agencies, um, potentially looking for red flags when it comes to them making faulty claims on your behalf? And do, would we even know if a faulty claim had been made on our behalf as, a, as job seekers? So the biggest red flag to keep an eye out for is when they ask for payslips. So you're not required to give them payslips under any guidelines or any social security law. They cannot touch you or hurt you. And if they ask for a, uh, a, a payslip, you just say no. Because what they're doing then is they're taking that payslip and then they're using that to generate an outcome payment to claim that they got you their job. So that's what that's like the first biggest red flag. The second uh, red flag that might come along, they'll probably send paperwork to you know also claim that they they found you that work. Or if you started a job and tell them, then they might send paperwork to say, oh, you've started working at this job, and that's another red flag to keep an eye out for. Um, 
So those are the two biggest ones, but just in general, like you do have more rights than you think. They're not given to you when you go to job agencies. Uh, there are plenty of resources, particularly through the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, um, and they also have a uh, you know an, an advocacy line where you can call up uh, to have a chat with them about that and uh, you know find out what your rights are because they are there. They do exist. They're not great, but the the sooner you learn to self advocate, the the better you know, the better time that you'll have because you'll have more control over a, you know, a pretty weak situation. Yeah, thank you so much, Jay. We'll no include all the details for those resources in our show notes. Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Great, thanks for having me. So we just heard from Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre who joined us this morning to discuss why job agencies have been forced to return $8.5 million in taxpayers' dollars after a record high in faulty claims were lodged through the Workforce Australia Employment Services Scheme during the 2022-2023 financial year. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And I think we might go to a track now. This is a new track released by, oh gosh, there are so many artists on this track. I'm going to say uh, Dobby, Kid Faro, Serene, BVT, and I can't read the rest of the people that are on this track because there are so many. Uh, but this one is uh, a First Nations and Palestine solidarity tune. It's called Until We're All Free. Another life for some profit, death in custody, another neck, but 
while they're lining their pockets Vote for these so-called leaders who always betray us I guess they're all puppets Enough is enough without death and destruction We fight for peace, love and justice Fear no man but the one above Rasi None made of flesh could come and never harm me No knife could scar me, no bullet could jar me I fear the Lord, how could I fear armies? With that blood on your hands, I still do my dance I'm singing my chants right here on my land These my people worth their weight in gold Come kill my body but can't take my soul Walk in solidarity, there is no apathy On invasion day, break the chains, set us free Speaking some equalities, spite of the policy Sears create another shared victory Yeah, well it's a craft for peace Ceasefire streets, patches release It's time to speak, no broken dreams Let the war cease, we all sin it free Save your fight, our land Our right till the end Of time, until we're all free From the river to the The other hand ain't taking human life Say democracy but given no choice Freedom of speech but silence in voice Hypocrisy reaps, they bombing for peace No water, no food, got nothing to eat Actions speak loud, talking is cheap Cease fire now, may there be peace Yo, yeah. then it killed by your hand Way more than you could understand Even your kids see what you got planned So I've got my fist up, get off their land Put up a peace sign, the confiscate Yell out cease fire, then take my pay You can do anything to save your face I got your name down in history's page uh. Say World War III for the profit sheet Breaking our bodies can't break dreams 2024, beat the drums of war But we don't want your war We won't watch war Guys are getting bombed We all want peace But the war carries on for how long? Nobody innocent children die Did a mother have to cry? Did a father have to curse? Why? News call sympathize Fears for lies But the truth is in the sky When there's nowhere to run And as the smoke clears up They did it to colonize It's genocide Cease fire Cease They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Fasaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. 
Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855am. And that was Until We're All Free, performed by Ali Saman, Big Riggs, BVT, Chill Cheney, Dem Mob, Dema Shaikuni, Dobby, Jafar, Kid Pharaoh, El Fresh the Lion, Misa, MC Trey, Mo Omran, Naja Haidar, Sarah Saleh, Serin, Wejdan Shamala, and Ziadala. So uh, that is the full list. Uh, I, I wasn't able to get through that in the front announce uh, of the song, but what a star lineup. And um, again, free Palestine till it's backwards. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchus Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. FreeCR is radical radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 0394. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And uh, we are now going to be joined by Senator Lydia Thorpe to talk about uh, a bunch of different things, including the genocide bill introduced into federal parliament last week, uh, the abysmal lack of progress on closing the gap targets and the Productivity Commission's scathing review of this overall progress on implementing these core principles around the Council of Australian Government's national agreement on closing the gap, the ongoing fight to stop black deaths in custody, and to get a bit of an update about scrutinising government expenditure in this week's round of Senate estimates hearings. Good morning, Senator. Good morning, Priya, and good morning, community. Yeah, thank you so much for making the time to join us on Thursday Breakfast and always appreciate the the time that you give to 3CR and to Community Radio. My pleasure. Um, so I thought we could start off with uh, the genocide bill. So last week you introduced the Criminal Code Amendment Genocide Crimes Against Humanity and War Crimes Bill 2024, which seeks to remove the requirement that the Attorney General consents to any domestic proceedings under the Criminal Code related to genocide and related atrocity crimes, as well as to remove this limitation on proceedings for such crimes committed prior to 2002. So these are some pretty significant changes that I'm sure have uh, implications both for what we're witnessing now in Gaza and also considering the genocidal dispossession of 
of First Nations in this place. So could you tell us a bit more about the importance of tabling this bill? Absolutely. Um, well, this bill came from the people, um, the, the black excellence out there, the black lawyers who put this idea and, and helped my staff put this together. Uh, and it's something that we've been wanting to, to put forward as a, as a people uh, for decades. And it basically removes the power of the Attorney-General to play God, basically, to, to decide, it sits with him as to whether anyone takes a genocide case to any of the courts in this country. So Mark Dreyfus has the final say. Uh, we know in previous Attorney-Generals uh, there have been cases put to them and they've denied those cases, one for Myanmar uh, that I know of uh, and one other. So there have been cases that have been knocked back already by the AG, not this particular AG that that I'm aware of. Uh, But basically the bill takes away that power and it gives people like us an opportunity to put um, a genocide case into the the so-called Australia court system. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we've not been able to do. It's, it's basically, you know, he's the blocker for us and for Palestine and for, for others to get any kind of justice in this country. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, when it comes to questions of, of sovereignty in this place as well, uh, the federal court, uh, or sorry, the, yeah, the, the federal courts basically, um, you know, defer any, consideration of that, any robust engagement with First Nations sovereignty saying it's a jurisdictional issue. Um, look, I also wanted to turn to the federal government's response to the Productivity Commission's Closing the Gap Review Report, which was released on the 7th of February. And there was like a clear uh, highlight of failure by state, territory and federal governments to address the, their four areas of priority reform. And I know now This week's Closing the Gap annual report, again, documented pretty abysmal outcomes. Only four of 19 key areas were identified as on track. And four areas for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people worsened over the past year, which also overlapped with the referendum. Uh, And this included social and emotional well-being, children thriving in their early years, adults not being overrepresented in the criminal justice system, and children not being overrepresented in the child protection system. Sorry means you don't do it again. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, these outcomes and uh, the government's response? Well, <clears throat> firstly, sorry is just heartless. There's nothing in that apology. Uh, and they made, they made sure when Rudd made that apology that there was no legal ramifications in that apology. They picked through that apology with a fine-tooth comb to ensure there was no justice for us except for a... A heartless sorry that they continue to celebrate uh, every year while our children are still being taken away from their families. Uh, <clears throat> in terms of the, the closing the gap, what a, what a ridiculous excuse for genocide. I mean, they know that this is going to happen every year. As long as they don't implement the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, all of those recommendations, 
and all of the recommendations to the Bringing Them Home report, then they're just making up things as they go along. They won't address the root cause, which comes from genocide and invasion and dispossession. They, you know, you hear politicians saying tinkering around the edges. Well, that's all they do. They maintain this um, gen- slow genocide of our people by continuing to fail on on more outcomes than not. And it's just a disappointment for blackfellas in this country every year. Here we go, closing the gap, another eye roll. How long am I going to live this year? You know, there's no... Um, my life expectancy hasn't increased according to closing the gap and it won't until we get justice for uh, our people in a way that saves our lives and continues um, continues our survival as a race of people in this country. Mm. And I, I'm going to poorly paraphrase uh, Mananjali and South Sea Islander Professor Chelsea Watergo here, but um, I've definitely uh, appreciated her commentary on closing the gap as uh, as even an idea which just ends up being a constant rehearsal of a litany of failures of the government to you know respectfully engage with Indigenous peoples, so that it just ends up basically being a a, a record of a, a proud record of the government's, um, you know, inaction on, on actual justice in this place. Um, now, yeah, I briefly... It's quite sickening, yeah. actually, yeah. on the day when you're in that, in that building and they bring their captain's picks in and, you know, have a, a morning tea, have a celebration whilst our people are, are struggling to survive out there. It's, it's demoralising, to say the least. Absolutely. Now, um, I wanted to uh, turn to a, a final issue. Now, Senate Estimates is running this week, and this includes Treasury and Foreign Affairs hearings continuing today, and there's going to be cross-portfolio Indigenous matters heard on Friday. Are there any specific areas of federal government expenditure that you're hoping to get to the bottom of in this round of estimates, such as some of the issues we've been discussing? Well, absolutely. We need to make sure that they're not funding police stations and police dogs out of uh, the Aboriginal, the um, Indigenous Australian strategy or whatever they've, they've called it, the AIS um, advancement strategy that they fund, funded police stations and dogs uh, at last estimate <laughs> whilst there was a, a crisis going on or still a crisis going on in the NT. Um, we know that... Um, the minister provided ten thousand dollars to the Northern, Northern Territory um, Police for their police dogs, so that they could basically use their dogs against our kids at that time. Um, so I'll be looking at where the money has gone, in, uh, particularly to non-Aboriginal organisations. Um, we know that Quantar, for example is very, very well off. They've got a partnership with the AFL and it's a boys' football program. They're very well funded. They're very well connected to politicians. And so they get well funded every year while our girls um, get nothing. Mm. Uh, The other issue is treaty. I mean, you know, the Albanese government went to 
the election promising um, the Uluru Statement to be implemented in full. They failed the referendum, which we knew they would. They should never have had that racist referendum in the first place. Uh, they should have started with truth, then treaty, and then had a conversation about constitutional recognition. Uh, but what they've done and what they're saying is that they, that they don't want to continue with truth and treaty. They're going to kick that down the road. And we want to know where the $5 million has gone that they allocated to uh, a Makarata commission. So we'll be questioning on that. Uh, and a number of cultural heritage issues and native title issues. My mm. office is inundated with blackfellas across this country being done over by their land councils or by their corporation because, again, they're too close to government, they're too close to the mining companies, and we need to um, question those land councils that are denying their, um, their traditional owners a say on what's happening on their country. That's happening everywhere. Uh, and usually when we do question um, land councils at estimates, you don't get the full picture. So it's a it's a difficult process to get answers. Um, the problems are so over overwhelming and the government are very good at controlling the narrative when it comes to estimates, you know, shutting you down. Um, I have more questions than I have time. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the deal with estimates is it's it's... It's heavy in uh, numbers from the government, so the government control all the committees mm -hmm. and they control all, all the questioning and uh, if it gets too hard, then they'll cut you off and, yeah. and move on. So I'm and looking forward to it, though, and I hope that everyone listens in. Absolutely, and wishing you all the best for that. Uh, we will be keeping an eye out, of course, to see what figures come out of there. And again, thank you so much for making the time for joining us this morning, Senator Thorpe. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Senator Lydia Thorpe who joined us to discuss, among other things, the genocide bill introduced into federal parliament last week, um, the abysmal lack of progress on closing the gap targets, and uh, the ongoing, ongoing fight to stop black deaths in custody, and also provided a bit of an update about scrutinizing government expenditure in this week's round of Senate estimates hearings. Now, that's all we've got time for today on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855am, but we will catch you next week. Um, just just one final plug for Subscriber Drive, which is happening all this week. You can call the station on 03-9419-8377. Drop in during our office hours Monday uh, to Friday, 9 to 5. And go to our website to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. We will catch you next week. Thanks so much again for your time. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.